Good morning, and it's lovely to be here with you. Um, before I say what I'm going to say, let me say this. Um, it was my great pleasure uh, with my wife, Rosie, to go and spend a little time in the United States. And we started in Florida, and therefore we met with Martin and Helen Atkins, uh, who, uh, and we arrived at their place just four days after the Hurricane Ian had blown its way across Florida. Uh, they, they were fine. Um, a couple of um, tiles were blown off their parsonage, as we must learn to call it, uh, very posh. And, um, uh, but they're, they're in good heart uh, and enjoying their ministry there. And uh, so I guess if they knew I was here, they'd be bringing, ask me to bring their greetings to you all today. Well, you'd be forgiven for thinking that we were reading the wrong reading from Luke's gospel <coughs> because it's about the crucifixion. Surely, do they not know at the Central or Westminster that we're heading towards Advent and Christmas and it's not Good Friday? What is going on? I have to tell you that the lectionary readings for today include the one from Colossians, which we had, and this reading from Luke's Gospel. Why? Well, Lansford, let me tell you. <laughs> Why? Because it makes us ask the question on this Sunday, when we say Christ is king, it makes us ask the question, what kind of a king is Jesus? What kind of a king is Jesus? And so we're going to explore that by using these um, readings from Colossians and Luke. But let's first of all pray. Come to us. O Lord Jesus Christ, and take the offering of these words and bring your word to us today. Whisper your grace into our lives that we indeed may be and prove to be your true disciples. This we ask in your name. Amen. Well, the passage in Luke's Gospel sets the scene very dramatically and succinctly, for it simply says, when they came to the place which is called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now, you can imagine the scene, can't you, in your mind's eye now? I mean, you've seen the film, right? You've seen the paintings, uh, and you've seen Jesus crucified and the nailed to the cross and the, the criminals either side uh, roped to the cross. Luke describes these actually as evil doers. We've got it translated in our English Bibles as criminals, but evildoers 
That's who they are. And actually, the inference is <coughs> that they're not the only evildoers that are present on that occasion, on the hill that we call Golgotha or Calvary, meaning the skull. Who was there? Well, obviously, Jesus, the criminals. But the people, says Luke, the people are there. Actually, in Luke's gospel, they are silent. As you move through that chapter, we discover that not only are they silent, but they're also sympathetic to Jesus' predicament. And then he describes the leaders. The leaders, I guess, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Levites, they are mocking Jesus. They are sarcastic comments about Jesus and what is happening. And then there's the soldiers. I mean, it was a work day for them. They clocked on in the morning and uh, they were just doing their task. Up the hill you go led by a centurion, uh, the three today, make sure they die. They actually joined in the sarcasm, but as a matter of fact, they're just doing their daily work, doing what they're told. And the comments of these leaders, they're meant to demean Jesus, to show the futility of his death. They want to crush all that Jesus has said and stood for. Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, in committing Jesus to be crucified, they wanted to stamp out the ideas of this new kingdom. And so they they submit him to this cruel death. The torture was intended to show that anybody who came along and tried to do likewise would suffer the same end. And it surely would be the end, wouldn't it? Because once the bloke Jesus is dead, his teaching is gone. So Caiaphas thought that he would triumph. But Jesus turned out to be victorious. And the statements, curiously, the statements of the leaders, as Luke calls them, and the soldiers, and the conversation of the two criminals, evildoers, those statements and conversation, they tell us so much about what it is that is happening at this time on the cross and what kind of king Jesus really is. The first is the mocking, sarcastic statements. Okay, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, save yourself. You've saved others. You can hear it, can't you? The kind of the spitting of the words, the cruel sarcasm. 
And of course, the irony is that if Jesus had saved himself, that would have brought an end to everything. It is because Jesus does not save himself that actually we can know that salvation of God for ourselves. Colossians gets it right that through him, through Jesus, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So that actually, the death of Jesus is not just for those people there. The death of Jesus is for all people in every place and for all time. God in Christ. You know, sometimes when people preach about the cross that we call the atonement, when they preach about that, you'd think, and you will have heard them, you'd think that actually they're preaching in such a way that the Father is kind of taking it out on the Son. Right? The wrath of the Father brought upon the Son. You'll have heard a sermon like that, I know. But I want to take you to Paul in Corinthians when it says, God in Christ is reconciling the world to himself. Or I take you to the great reformer, Martin Luther, who in his writings, he wrote in Latin, he says, Deus crucifixus. In other words, on the cross, God dies. Or go to the Gospel of John and see there the statements. Then Jesus says, I and the Father are one. If you see me, you see the Father. And we know from the scriptures, because it gives us so much evidence, that when we speak about God, we're speaking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not speaking about Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're speaking about one God who reveals himself as Father, as Son in Jesus, and as Holy Spirit, our enabler and sustainer today. So when Jesus dies on the cross, didn't the Father over against him? Did the Father and the Spirit with him? And then there comes that moment, a sheer abandonment and the pain of all of it. Friends, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It's a big thing to grasp. I do understand that. It's a mystery. I understand that. And so we can say, God is saving us. We do say, Jesus 
is the one who saves others. And he does it because he did not save himself at that time. He did not abuse his power. And then there's another taunt from the leaders. <coughs> of course, are really worked up about Jesus and everything he says. If he is the Messiah of God, his chosen one, let him save himself. And the notion of the chosen one, the notion, sorry, the notion of the if as echoes of the temptation. You remember? Satan tempts Jesus and says, if you're the son of God, here it is again. If you're the son of God, step down from the cross. Show your power. Do your wonder-working stuff. You've turned water into wine. Why not? You could do it. But it would undo the very thing that God wants for us. And the chosen one goes right back to the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9, which is a kind of the, the turning point in the whole of Luke's gospel. Listen to him, says the voice to the wondering group of disciples. Listen, this is my chosen one. Listen to him. And the notion of Jesus being the chosen one has echoes of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, the chosen one will bring forth justice to the nations. Actually, the leaders, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees who are there, they stumble on something which is really important about Jesus. He is the one who, through his ministry, has overturned social norms. He has brought to the center the marginalized. He has bring healing to the sick and care for the needy. He is a king who will bring justice and right living and right ruling to communities and nations. My friends, how we need the values and the moral courage of this amongst those who would be our leaders here in this nation. How we need it in Egypt at COP27, in a climate, tri cl climate crisis, and it would appear that they've come to a, a, an agreement, but let's hope that that agreement actually has traction. And the nations will do what they say. And they'll do enough to care for creation. And we're aware day by day of the war in Ukraine, the terrifying prospect from uh, a despotic leader in Russia. But it's not the only war. Around the world, there are continuing conflicts. 
proxy wars. We need peace. We need the Prince of Peace to lead people to find peace. And in different parts of the world, we have dictators or would-be dictators, if you hear everything I'm saying, and national leaders who are full of their own self-importance. Indeed, our own nation has lost its moral compass. We need leaders who will bring forth justice, who are peacemakers, who will care for the needy and the marginalized. You know, when John Wesley, bless his heart, when he summarized what he believed God had called <coughs> the people of Methodism to be, Excuse me. He wrote that God had raised up the people called Methodists to reform the nation and in particular the church and to spread scriptural holiness over the land. Now you will have heard dozens of times that Methodism was called to spread scriptural holiness over the land and hallelujah for that, right? But note what he puts first, to reform the nation, in particular the church. So the reforming power of God is something that we need. So when we say that Jesus saves us, it's not just about a personal thing, it is personal, it's not just individual, it's communal, it's national, it's international. A peace and a justice and a transformation of all things and all people. The chosen one, Jesus is a king who saves others. Jesus is a king who is the chosen one. But it's also the one who restores. We read the narrative again. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh my goodness, <laughs> how often that could have been said about you and me, right? Not just the people there. And Jesus, in the midst of this painful torture, it is lucid and in conversation with the Father. He realizes the ignorance of the soldiers, the misguided uh, leaders, and has conversations with the criminals beside him. Just notice for a moment the conversation that Jesus had, a kind of snapshot of the conversation with the criminals. There's one who repeats the taunts of the leaders and the soldiers. If you're the Messiah, can you please save yourself? And by the way, us as well. We really quite like that. And the other rebukes him and says, be quiet. This man has done nothing wrong. 
And what's interesting is what Jesus says. Well, he goes on to say, Jesus, remember me. In effect, Jesus, have mercy on me. And what does Jesus say? He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is the one who reconciles and the one who restores. And what's interesting is that in Luke's gospel, today is a word that occurs 11 times. And it's always the offer of God's forgiveness and God's salvation to someone. So, for instance, Zacchaeus, at the end of the conversation, <laughs> we don't have that conversation when they're in the house. Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Or when he's in Nazareth, having read the scroll, he says, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. It's a powerful reminder that today it's today for us. Today, God wants to bring his forgiving and reconciling power to you. Today, God <coughs> wants to bring justice and peace to our communities, to our nations, and to our world. Today, God wants to bring his saving love. Why do I say this? Well, Colossians puts it so well. It sets the death of Jesus in a cosmic setting. This is not just the carpenter from Nazareth who is suffering dramatic pain, painful death. This is the one who has been with the Father from the beginning. This is the one who was there when all things were brought into being, and yet he is now whipped and scourged and manhandled and pinned through his wrists and his ankles to a Roman gibbet. Yet we know this suffering is not the end. Curiously, this is not a terrible thing. This is glorious. John's gospel, right throughout, talks about the, the cross as glory. For death brings life. This pain brings healing. This mistrial brings justice. The cross is not the end, but it is a new beginning. A new beginning for you, for me, for the whole cosmos. So to answer the question that we posed at the very beginning, what kind of a king is Jesus? He's one who cares for others. Even in the extremists of the crucifixion, he deals with the needs of the criminals all around him. He's one who understands the predicament of people, the ignorance of the soldiers, the misunderstanding of the leaders. And you. He does not abuse his power, but offers forgiveness and is one who makes a transforming difference. One who does for us that which we cannot do for ourselves. 
He brings salvation today, now. He is the chosen one for you. His teaching on justice and right living is for you and for this nation and the nations of the world. He is the savior for you. He will restore you. He will reconcile you. All this for you today. The question, my friend, is whether you will receive it. Now, finally, this Sunday is sometimes called Stir Up Sunday. And there are two reasons for that. The first is that the collect for the day in the old uh, Anglican Church of England service book started with the words, Stir up, O Lord, we beseech thee, thy faithful people. And the second is that this day traditionally was the day when families would gather and they would put in all the ingredients for their Christmas pudding or their Christmas cake and they'd take a turn to stir it up. <coughs> I don't know whether you're, any of you are going home to do something like that. My prayer is that God will stir you. My prayer is that God will stir our church up. That God will stir things up in our nation, our communities, our families. So that we seek his grace, we embrace his justice, we receive his salvation. May God bless you this day.